0: Welcome to the 75th episode of the I'm in Love With That Song podcast here on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brad Page, and on these milestone episodes, and I don't know, I kind of think 75 is a bit of a milestone, don't you? I like to mix things up from the usual format and do something a little different. So I've said from the very beginning that this podcast is not about music theory or technical details. We don't talk about I don't know, flat sevenths or mixelodeon modes or frequency response curves or compression ratios regarding recording. That's not what I wanted this show to be about. And frankly, I'm not really smart enough to provide any insight on that stuff anyway. But some of this terminology creeps its way into the podcast. We end up with some terms that we just have to use. It can't be avoided. We have to rely on some kind of common terminology to describe certain events. But I know there are listeners out there of all different stripes coming to this show from different angles, so I'm not sure how common some of this terminology is. So I thought after 75 episodes, it might be time to define what some of these terms actually mean. So let's start by saying that rock and roll is not a formal, scholarly form of music like classical music. That seems like stating the obvious, but it also means that a lot of the terminology we use in the context of rock music is also a lot less formal. A lot of the terms or expressions we use are closer to slang than they are to definitive descriptions. So, while in classical terms, there's little debate between forte and fortissimo, those are degrees of loudness, in rock and roll, we can argue over what's heavy and what's loud, or the differences between a riff and a lick, and don't worry, we'll get there. So, as best I can, and hopefully you'll give me some latitude here, I'll try to define some of these terms or expressions in the context of rock music, the lingua franca of rock. First, let's talk about why rock music needs its own language or musicology that's different from traditional or classical musicology. The primary method of communication for classical music is notation, sheet music. A composer writes the music literally writes the notes down on staff paper, and that score is distributed to the orchestra, who reproduce what's on the paper. This is why, a hundred years later, we can faithfully replay the music that Bach or Beethoven created, even though there are no recordings of the original performances of that music. Rock, on the other hand, is primarily sourced from recordings. Sure, you can buy sheet music for your favorite song, but that notation wasn't the primary source. It's a transcription. It was taken from the recording. When you study classical music, you're analyzing the score. But you can't analyze rock music like that. It doesn't work that way. Rock music is so dependent on the recording that the sheet music or the score can't capture how much distortion is on the guitar or how much reverb is on the vocal. For those of you who are long-time listeners of this podcast, you know we talk about those elements all the time. And this is why if the Beatles had written but never recorded Strawberry Feels Forever, nobody would be able to reproduce the way that song sounded no matter what sheet music they have. Now, most of this is true for jazz and blues and folk music too, but I would argue that no music before rock and roll relied so heavily on recording as its primary medium. Okay, so let's start with the basic building blocks of a song. You can think of a typical rock or pop song as having four layers. The first layer is all about rhythm. This is the realm of drums and percussion. Precise pitch doesn't really matter here. Obviously, a bass drum is pitched lower than a snare drum, but we're not talking about tuning a bass drum to a specific note so that it's in tune with a guitar. Let's take a look at the basic elements of a drum kit. At the center, you have the bass drum or kick drum. Of course, we call it a kick drum because you're playing it with your foot. Then there's the snare drum, which is a specialized drum that has metal wires that run across the bottom head, which rattle or buzz each time the drum is hit. And depending on the drummer's preference and style, the drum kit can include one or more, sometimes many, tom-toms. There are mounted toms, and rack toms, floor toms, and roto toms. Then, of course, there are cymbals. I'm sure you know what those sound like. And the hi-hat, which is a special pair of cymbals that you open and close with your foot. So now that that's out of the way, let's get into our first subjective terms, the difference between a beat and a groove. The way I like to think of a beat is a pattern, the way the drummer places each element, a kick drum here, a snare drum hit there, to build a pattern that will repeat. That's your beat. A groove is more about the way a pattern is played, the subtle differences. Maybe the snare drum is delayed ever so slightly. Some hits of the kick drum are a little softer than others, or there are accents added on the hi-hat. It's all about the feel of the part. Another expression you hear sometimes is in the pocket. A pattern can be sped up or slowed down to just the right speed or tempo. And there's another term, tempo. Tempo means how fast or how slow you're playing. It's the heartbeat or the pulse of the music, The tempo. So when the speed is just right and the drummer applies the right feel to it, they're playing in the pocket. So that's our first layer, the rhythm. The second layer is the low frequencies, those deep notes. This is where the bass player lives. It doesn't technically have to be a bass guitar, I mean, it could be a synthesizer or a keyboard of some kind, but in rock and roll it's usually a bass guitar people tend to look at the bass as almost an afterthought. I guess that's why there are so many bass player jokes. How do you make a bass player's eyes light up? Ah, Shine a flashlight in his ear. (laughs) But the bass is in a very unique position. It's part of the rhythm along with the drums, and it can also be a melodic instrument. It can play both of those roles within the same song. It can even do both of those things at the same time. The third layer is for the higher frequencies, and this is home for the melodies, either played on an instrument or sung. Unlike the first layer, this layer is all about pitch. When you think of a song as having a good tune, it's this layer you're thinking of. When you're humming a song to yourself, it's probably from this layer. Is there anybody going to listen to my story? All about the girl who came to stay. She's the kind of girl you want so much it makes you sorry. Still, you don't regret a single day. And the fourth layer is occupied by the harmonies. In some ways, this is the glue that holds the other layers together. And in other ways, it's like the icing on the cake. Either way, it's the layer that's least likely to stand on its own. Cause what good is glue without something to stick together? And icing by itself can be sickly sweet. Because the sky is blue it makes me
1: cry because
0: the sky There's our four layers. Rhythm, bass, melody, harmony. Let's talk about a few other musical terms. We've already discussed tempo. That's the pulse of the music. Pitch, of course, is the position of a note on the musical scale, whether it's a high note or a low note. Timbre. Now, the term timbre is a little tough to explain timbre is the quality that makes a note on one instrument sound different from the same note on another instrument. It's why a middle C on piano sounds different than a middle C on a saxophone. Or why the low E string on an acoustic guitar sounds different than the low E string on an electric guitar. Timbre. I don't use the word timbre much on this show. I usually refer to tone, which probably isn't as accurate, but hey, it's my show. And while we're on the subject of guitars, let's talk about the difference between a riff and a lick. Remember that these are subjective terms. So this is just how I see it. A riff is a musical idea. It can be short, but generally, it's a complete musical idea, and it can stand on its own. Typically, a riff will repeat multiple times, and it will reoccur within the same song. It has at least some degree of melody. You can usually hum it to yourself. Lick is a shorter phrase. It's usually not a complete musical idea. Sometimes it can be, but usually it does not stand on its own. It's meant to be combined with other phrases, or to counterpoint or augment something else, like a vocal. Guitar solos are often made up of licks. So, riff, lick. Riff. (laughs) Lick. You got it? Riff. (laughs) Lick. Another guitar thing that comes up on this show all the time is arpeggiating a chord versus just strumming that same chord. And as we're talking about guitars, I would be remiss if I didn't address the different types of distortion. This is actually a whole palette of sounds. Just as there are a 100 shades of blue, there are just as many variations of distorted guitar tone. Again, this is subjective, but I tend to put guitar tone into a few categories. There is, of course, clean tone, meaning basically no distortion at all. Then there's overdrive, which you can think of as the sound of an amp turned up just to the point of breaking up. And overdrive can be crunchier like this. Then you have full-on distortion, and there is a ton of variation in this range. All the way from this... ...to something like this... Into something a little more metal, to more of a nineteen eighties distorted guitar sound, which evolved to some of the more heavier guitar tones you hear today. Then there's fuzz tone, which is its own specific kind of distortion. This tone has its origins in the 1960s, and it's a sound that can be compared to a swarm of bees. Within a few years, that tone was refined a bit and became the driving guitar sound behind bands like Queen and Black Sabbath. Let's pause here for a quick break, and we'll be right back. Let's go back and talk a bit more about rhythm, time signatures, beats per measure. This is getting into real music theory, and I do not want to drag this podcast too far into that. So let's keep it simple. There are only a handful of common rhythms in rock music. There's the classic 4-4 time signature, which is four beats to the measure. We're all familiar with how this feels. Common variation on that is the shuffle beat. Another term that you hear often is backbeat. What is a backbeat? Well, essentially, it's a rhythm where the accent is squarely on beats 2 and 4, and that pattern is consistent through most of the song. An early example of this is Good Rockin' Tonight by Winoni Harris. It's a song from the pre-rock and roll era, but it certainly sets a template that most rock and roll would follow. now you compare that to many jazz songs and you'll see there's not nearly as heavy an accent on the two and the four So the backbeat is simpler and more straightforward, but it still has a great feel to it, which is why it's so great to dance to. You can also have what is sometimes referred to as a double backbeat. That's when one of those beats has two eighth notes rather than one quarter note. Ringo Starr was a master at this. Last
1: night I said these were to my girl.
0: Then there's three-quarter time, which is three beats per measure, usually referred to as waltz time. But it's not just for waltzes. Here's an example of three-quarter time in a more rock or R&B context. You're the key to my piece of mind. Then there's 6 8 time, which feels similar to 3 quarter time. It's easy to get them confused, and I admit I do sometimes. The difference is the emphasis on the beat. Here's a famous song you all know that's in 6 8. Try counting to 6, and notice the accents are on beats 1 and 4. We
1: are the
0: So those are the primary time signatures that you hear most often in rock music. Of course there are others, 5-4, 7-4, but they're just not as common. Now let's spend some time talking about studio effects. First let's look at effects like phasing, flanging, reverb, and echo. The one thing that all of these effects have in common is time, the manipulation of time. All of these effects were created in the early days of recording by physically or mechanically manipulating tape. Nowadays, it's all done digitally. Let's start with a sound you're all familiar with echo. Echoes are created naturally when a sound wave is reflected off a distant surface and bounces back at you. We can recreate that effect in the studio like this Hello! 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 the further the sound wave has to travel before it's reflected back at you the longer the time between the repeats so your ear naturally intuits this hello 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 as being a bigger space than this hello. hello the shorter the delay between the echoes the smaller the perceived space Now, when you really tighten up the distance between the reflections to about 140 milliseconds or less, and then limit the echo to one single repeat, you get what we call slapback echo. It sounds like this. That's That's one one for for the the money money, and two two for the the show. show. This effect was pioneered by Sam Phillips at Sun Records and is a key feature to all those classic 1950s records.
1: Fool Baby, come back.
0: <laughs> so now what happens when we shorten the time between the original sound and the reflection to 50 milliseconds or less? At this point, it It sounds sounds like like the the vocals vocals are doubled. This is similar to ADT, or automatic double tracking, an effect that was actually created at Abbey Road Studios specifically for the Beatles. John Lennon loved the sound of doubling his vocals, but the process of recording each vocal twice is really tedious work. So he asked the engineers at Abbey Road to come up with an electronic way to reproduce that same sound. And an engineer named Ken Townsend invented a way to do it using multiple tape recorders and an oscillator to vary the speed on one machine, creating the effect of a doubled vocal. Once you shorten the delay time to be less than 50 milliseconds, your ears can no longer hear the original sound and the echoes as separate events. They blur together as one continuous sound that's the difference between echo Echo. and reverb reverb is caused by multiple short reflected sound waves that reach your ear at slightly different times and blend together as one extended sound reverb is critically important because it's the thing that gives you a sense of space and a sense of place it's what makes a small room sound different from a large cavernous space. Every room that you've ever been in has its own reverb characteristics. Another way we can manipulate time for effect is to take a sound, split it into two signals, and delay one of those signals a tiny bit, less than 20 milliseconds and then slightly but continuously changing that delay time, which creates this sweeping, swooshing sound. It's often used on guitar sounds like this. But you can also apply this to all of the tracks, which can produce a really dramatic effect as if the whole song is swirling around you. This effect is called flanging. Back in the day, it was originally created by playing the track simultaneously on two tape machines. Then the recording engineer would gently put his finger on one of the tape reels, slowing it down slightly, and that would cause the effect. Now, the rim of the tape reel is called the flange, and that's where the name flanging came from because you were physically putting your finger on the flange. There is one more effect that I want to talk about called phase shifting, or phasing. It sounds similar to flanging, but it's achieved differently, at the risk of getting too technical. In phasing, the signal is passed through some non-linear all-pass filters and then mixed back into the original signal. It creates a similar sweeping sound, but it's not as complex a sound as flanging. Eddie Van Halen used phasing to get this sound. (coughs) One final bit of studio trickery to talk about, and that is compression. To understand compression, you first have to understand dynamics. That is the difference between the loudest and the softest moments of a song. If a song has some very quiet moments and then some very loud ones, you'd say that song has a lot of dynamics. If the song is loud all the way through, then it doesn't have much dynamic range. Now, a compressor is a device or a piece of software used to reduce dynamic range, to limit the span between the loudest and the softest sounds. Compression can be used to smooth out a particular track, to make sure there are no spikes in a vocal performance, for example, or to keep the drums at an even, manageable level. But compression can also be horribly overused. Too much compression can suck the life out of a track. It can also result in a sound that's fatiguing to your ears. One of the most frustrating things about music produced in the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, is the overuse of compression to make everything louder than everything else to the point where there's no dynamic range left at all like this. It is a terrible thing for music, and it leaves your ears exhausted. The overuse of compression and signal processing created what they call the loudness war, where everybody was trying to get their songs louder than the competition, even pushing the levels into clipping, which is the harshest and most unpleasant kind of distortion. Thankfully, in recent years, the industry is more aware of this issue and you're starting to see dynamic range making a comeback. Let's hope that continues for the sake of the music, and for the sake of our ears. I hope this detour into the terminology and language of rock was worth the trip for you. I appreciate you coming along for the ride. In creating the framework for this episode, I used a book called Rock, the Primary Text by Alan F. Moore, so I want to make sure I gave him credit for that. Thanks for being part of the last 75 episodes of this podcast. I'll be back in two weeks with another song, and another show. Until then, you can catch up on all the previous 75 episodes on our website, lovethatsongpodcast.com. This show is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, home to many great music-related podcasts. Check them out. Until we meet again, take care of yourselves and keep speaking the language of rock. See you next time.